Hey, whoa! What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Hold My Bread. As always, I am Matt Backus with host. Hello, breadheads, gather round. Let us join the gluten gang. You are listening to the nine thousand forty-one dollar and forty-five dollar podcast. It's good to be back. In the red, CCIV, $25.10 a share. Let's party. It seemed like the the bleeding has stopped, though. We're, we were just in a, almost, it felt like a free fall forever, and now we've just kind of leveled out a little bit. As goes tech, so goes the entire market. We got all these hipster-ass stocks. You know they're going to be attached to it. Yeah, everybody, everything, everything's dragging, tech is driving, dragging everybody down. Yeah, but now we are back. And uh, maybe part of it's because GameStop 2 is now a story that's dragged into multiple weeks. And you're a big part of this battle. How's that going for you? I feel great. Um, I uh, I got in pretty, pretty low. And uh, not in for much. I'm a little mad at myself because I was a little nervous. I mean, the whole thing in the first place got me nervous. And then... Uh, so I was a little nervous to get back into it because I just didn't know what to expect. I feel like for the first time this all happened, I, I felt comfortable in, in taking risks and this, I didn't take the, the, the big risks and, um, but I'm good. I'm good. It's, you know, it peaked at almost what 300 something today and a lot uh, of variance. So you, you know, it had valleys in the high one hundreds and peaks in the mid threes. So it was all over the map. It looked like the Swiss Alps. Yeah, so, but I'm doing good. I'm still weighing the green. I am uh, happy, looking to turn another profit. Hopefully, it's going to go a little higher. I wouldn't mind a little bit of a dip here in the next few days, so I can maybe buy a little bit more. But who knows? I think uh, I think I might be out as far as buying more. But I'm good with what I have. Yeah, and you know, it is big news. One of our companies we've been eyeing for a while. One company that you became a big fan of on the show, actually. <laughs> true, true. Roblox. They. They went public today. They went up. It was a skyrocket from forty-five to sixty-nine fifty. Yeah, they um, they really uh, are doing well. I expect it to. I expect this stock to be a big buy. I'm, unfortunately, I missed the window as far as the open. I we've which I'm sure we'll get into. We've both had a very stressful, very long, crazy day. So well, I I, did, I looked for it. I didn't see a window. It was an opening bid price, but I knew if I placed it at 45, I would miss out on it. So, you know, I, I will. I am ashamed to admit we are still on Robin Hood, you know, just because it's hard to get out of it. So I don't I don't think I could have placed that trade if I wanted to. Yeah, I didn't have the chance to even look. I mean, I have uh, I have not really been keyed into the stocks at all really today, unfortunately. But I did see I did see that it IPO'd high or, or that it that it IPO'd and then uh, it shot up. And I think it's very valuable. I spent some time with my nephews over the uh, over the last week or two, and they were on their iPads. If they weren't hanging out with me or somebody else doing something, anytime they were on their iPads, they were playing Roblox and when they were playing Roblox, they were changing their clothes. They were, they were changing all this stuff and it looked like just a cash grab. Uh, so I get why the company is valued so highly. You, you want to know the real reason why I didn't buy this stock? What's it, that? It's, it's pretty disheartening, you know, cause I know about this. I got a little nephew as well. I play it through him and he has a birthday coming up and I was like, you know what? He loves Roblox. He loves Dogecoin. 
And, you know, he could he could have a better lot in the world. Great family. But materially, maybe I can bestow some of those skills. And I'm like, I'm going to buy this kid a portfolio and I can't do it because it'll be held against him for how, his health insurance. Oh, what? How's that? How, how does that work? He can't have any assets in his name. So putting that out there is even just attached to him is no bueno. I'll, ha I'll have to do it myself. And I probably should have gotten prepared for it for getting in on the rope Roblox open. But it was like, yeah, I got to start my own account somewhere. So I didn't, it was a lot of hoops to jump through for a disheartening moment. Wow. Yeah, that is a bummer. I, um, I'm very interested in, in it. I'm going to monitor the, uh, the news with this company and I'm going to monitor the stock price and hopefully, uh, I'll be able to get in here sooner rather than later. I'm a little hesitant about getting back in. I don't have a ton of stuff in the market right now. I have my, uh, CCIV in my personal portfolio, I have my CCIV, I have my GameStop and I have a few small, uh, pharmaceutical companies, but, um, as far as getting back in and really getting my hands into it, I'm a little hesitant to, hesitant to do that, uh, right now. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm kind of in a similar place. I'm back to my buy and hold ways, but, um, there is some like concern over Roblox. So there is a possibility for dips in this company's future. And it is sort of weird, you know, like Roblox, it has so many, it, like it's key, like variable is people are able to make and share things. Mm -hmm. So it's, they don't really have a property. They're just selling a network of user data. It's more of a business model similar to say Etsy than it would be EA Sports or something like that. That's a very good way to, to look at it. I, it's a, it's, it, is, it is interesting because what's going to happen as people, you know, uh, I, we don't really know. I'd be curious to know the breakdown of the people that play Roblox, but it's like if it is our nephews, what's going to happen as these kids get older? Are they are they going to fall off? Are people constantly going to be doing this? Is this going to be a thing that you know that what's the word permeates you know age age difference or or I'm it could be something that. that kids always do at a certain stage in their development because it is like user developed that it sort of mirrors the existence of like being a kid kind of authentically. So there might be some staying power to it. Yeah. And I mean, the numbers we do have, I mean, they, they do not lie. We covered this. I don't have it in front of me right now, but I remember when we did the first Roblox episode, the daily number of users is crazy. Um, and I would imagine that has only gone up. So I, I don't, uh, yeah, like I guess that I'm very optimistic. I'm hoping there's a better spot to buy in for Roblox for me. It's not now, but I do think it's going to be uh, something I'm going to buy in the future. Yeah. And do you think it's been Roblox has been a worse like user experience these past few weeks as like investor types make accounts and start playing on the platform to suss it out a little bit? Oh yeah, of course. I mean, the influx of new people in there. I mean, Myers, Myers Leonard has been on there. I'm sure he's uh, getting in trouble on there as well. You know what? Over the summer, I did an entire podcast, an hour in character as Myers Leonard. So uh -huh. it's amazing that I didn't say worse things than him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's, I mean, what a, what a wild time, you know, that's, I've been streaming on Twitch for a while and uh, I don't, you know, know how you can, how, how could you, I don't understand it. It's wild. Not to get into, not to get off topic, but it's wild. Yeah. I don't know. 
It is so crazy. Yeah, I, I, I just remembered I, I should retweet that Myers Leonard episode I did. So it's very topical. I can't believe he beat me. Yeah, now is the time. Cash in on that Myers Leonard name. Yeah, so we do have a, a kind of fun episode planned for you guys. And boy, howdy, did we have a journey getting this one out. Yeah, this is a bummer. I was really looking forward to this. Uh, I was looking forward to being a part of the episode. And I, I don't know, I just love when we have guests on. And I especially love when we have guests on that are way overqualified for our show, which is most of them. Uh <laughs> Yeah, and this woman is genuinely an inspiration to me. I was I sent her a gushing email to start our correspondence. And, um, you know, we had this thing booked, and Matt had a doctor's appointment, whatever. That doesn't change it. It was kind of like, okay, we got a workaround. We didn't realize it till later, and that's fine. But then on my end, I my old boss at the props network i don't work there anymore the old joey baby's looking for the nba internships um, <laughs> he took back some of his gear and he took back some of my gear so i didn't have my audio interface i couldn't get it to work with zoom so i really had to cobble it together so i was good to go for this bad boy i was pretty dense in my research so i left out some pretty cool stuff matt uh, well, so is that what you want to tell me about some of the stuff you left out? Well, her name is Morgan Simon. She's a writer for Forbes. She's a essential part of this activist investing group, the Candide Group. And she authored a book. She literally wrote the book on the subject. Um, Real Impact is her, her book. You purchase it everywhere. But she kind of covers the private prison stuff like pretty closely in her Forbes work. And she got sued for defamation. Wow. I, uh, that's one of those things where you hear about people that happening to people, but to get to talk to somebody that's actually had to go through that is, is interesting. Yeah. And like, I did have a, a kind of bad moment with her off air. Cause I don't know if you guys know, um, I worked for major league baseball and <laughs> I put up some funny Facebook statuses and they sued me and it, went away uh, by the grace of God. And I was like, yeah, isn't getting sued by a big corporation fun? And she's like, no, not at all. I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry that didn't make it into the episode. <laughs> I was such a rube that the, the doorbell went off. I lost my train of thought one time, but I really, I stumbled through it. We had such a good talk that um, I knew we had 30 minutes. I filled it up as best as I can. And she had a lot of amazing insights. She related us them to like our level of investor, like people who listen to this show level investors. <laughs> what up Houston? Yeah, we got it. And um, her Twitter is Morgan Simon one. She's also like, I guess a big dancer. So I went off talking about basketball. She also, and my other embarrassing moment in it is, um, one of the companies she's involved with had a role in producing Jesus and the Black Messiah. Oh, wow. And I just started talking about playing basketball Wait, with the- you mean Judas? Yeah, Judas and the Black Messiah. I'm sorry. That's um, okay. And I just started talking about my experiences playing basketball with the Lucas brothers with no context. And she's like, uh, oh, sure. 
that's cool i mean you know whatever yes but um i hope you guys enjoy our conversation as much as i did here it is to morgan simon well hello joel thanks for having me thanks for coming on i think i sent you a pretty enthusiastic email i was waiting to go on a plane and uh, i'm afraid of flying so thanks for responding Oh, absolutely. Um, and I know flying is not something we do that often these days, so kind of heightens the experience. Nice pun there. I see you know you're on a comedy podcast and you're coming in with the wordplay <laughs> right from the jump. And I think it is kind of funny. Cause, so everyone on the pod, they know I kind of care about private prisons. They know I'm a student, but I actually came to appreciate you because I'm in some group projects for my finance course. And I've said like, hey, guys, can we do private prison related and nothing could get them to really see it from my perspective until I shared some of your writing on Forbes.com. So I appreciate that. Well, thank you. And I think in general, you know, that's a major objective um, in my work as a senior contributor to Forbes.com, the idea that there's a money story behind every story and that part of how finance wins often is by making itself really opaque um, and making us think that it's, you know, you're going to the domain of others or that it's just boring and complicated, as opposed to it really having such a massive impact on so many issues that we care about. So, you know, whether it's private prisons or even uh, more recently, I did a piece on the Free Britney movement, right? And, and what yeah. that means around, you um, the treatment of women and money and the way that so many of us get infantilized. So I think the more that we start to see those connections and make those accessible, um, that that really does a lot in kind of pushing this broader agenda. You know, and my, my day-to-day work is really focused on impact investing, you know, working with families and foundations and athletes and influencers who want their money working for justice, um, but acknowledging that that's something we all can do, you know, whether you have a hundred dollars or a hundred million in the bank. Yeah. And, you know, we vote every time we spend a dollar. That's something I believe in. And, you know, just to go off of how our how private prisons are similar to Brittany, it's just like these revenue streams, they're kind of cultivated to just be profitable based off like subjugating others. So I really appreciate everything that you're doing with your activist investing. So you know, if, as outsiders, as like kind of new newbies to the investment world, like what are some guideposts that can help us be more activist investors in our own lives? So, so you're right. You might have even stolen that line from me, ha. Huh? Um, that you know, you vote every four years, but you vote every day with every dollar that you spend or invest. And I think it's just being really conscious of um, one the ways that you're casting that vote. And two, the times that you're kind of handing your ballot to someone else, right? That I think when we put our money in the bank, we often kind of picture some James Bond movie, right? That there's this like vault in the back and that our money is kind of sitting out there um, as opposed to really knowing that our money is uh, being lent out to other businesses in the economy. And that could mean that it's funding, you know, really great things like helping businesses recover during COVID or um, renewable energy, or it could mean financing things like private prisons. So I think in terms of thinking, you know, what can we all do as investors? The first step is really just knowing where does your money spend the night? 
you know, when you're putting it in the bank or if you have a retirement fund or, you know, in the stock market or any ways that you might uh, be investing um, of, is that matching your values? And can you really, you know, be proud of what it's up to? So the first is, is really just asking questions of saying, I have the right to know where this money is because too often we put it in the bank or we give it to a financial advisor and then we start acting like it's not ours anymore. You know, that someone else is going to make those decisions for us. Um, and you wouldn't do that with your vote, right? <laughs> so why would you do that with your money either? No, you wouldn't. And, you know, just kind of in business school, because I'm very much an outsider there, it feels like my ideas are kind of radical. But if you look at like European and global exchanges, like the actual impact of these organizations is kind of normalized. And it's maybe the American exchange where people are lining up to make money off Palantir is the aberration. I, the theory I would have, though, is that I, I want to truly believe that we are a, a values-driven nation. Um, and I think it's more, you know, so take in the instance of private prisons where the two largest share owners, Vanguard and BlackRock, mostly that's because of index funds, right? These funds that basically say they own the market. They own, you know, it's whether the uh, Fortune 500 or the small cap indexes or whatnot. And if you own the index, you get to kind of just say, well, it's not my fault. You know, it's just the index. Um, and I think that's where a lot of people, you know, and, and also like, guess what a lot of those Vanguard funds are? It's, it's retirement. It's Eggs. people's retirement. Right. So I think that's where I don't, I, I want to believe that it's not that there's millions of Americans lining up to say, I would love to make money for my family by locking up someone else's family. I actually think that there are millions of Americans who have no idea that it's their money that's locking up other families. And the more that people are aware of this and then start to reach out to those players and say, hey, where is my money spending the night? And this isn't appropriate. And this isn't aligned with my values or the values of, of this institution. Um, that's when we start to see change. Um, so, so yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't knock us as you know these uh, terribly immoral people uh, compared to our, our peers. Exactly. But on the other end of it, these private prison stocks, they are deliberate designed to appeal to these Vanguard, BlackRock, um, robo-advisors for people who care about their retirements just because the dividend payment is so good. And now with the charts down, like even more value will go there. So I understand like a lot of efforts of this movement, like they kind of have the same mechanics, right? Like well, so I do have to stop you on one thing, Joel. Perhaps those dividends had been good in the past, but you may recall um, and I, I, one of the big two, if not both, I want to make sure I'm, I'm speaking accurately here, suspended their dividends. You know, we're, we're actually not having such a great year. And in the past year, the stock of both Geo Group and CoreCivic has fallen by over 50%. So I, I hear you that from a structural perspective, right, that that has been the objective. And I think that, uh, so, so private prisons, at least uh, Geo Group and CoreCivic historically, which, which actually just changed its corporate form, but uh, historically have been what they call real estate investment trusts, REITs. And I think it's also pretty funny, you know, I think feeding back into your thesis on the, the smoke and mirrors of this, you know, the idea that you could just call prisons real estate, right, um, is pretty wild. And in the same way that the founder, one of the founders of what at the time was called Corporate Corrections of America, now CoreCivic, had said that they felt that they could sell uh, prisons just like you sell real estate or hamburgers. 
right? Uh, that they were able to actually reduce the idea of locking up people to selling a hamburger. Um, and I think that's where you're right, that sometimes in the context of American capitalism, the idea of what it's appropriate to make money off of um, has just become unbelievably distorted. Um, and that that's where I do think there's a really important role for this consumer voice and this investor voice to say, you know, maybe I want something different. Um, maybe there is a different way to to invest my money. Ab absolutely. I believe with that. And I, I appreciate you correcting me where I misstep because sometimes the passion gets in, oh, in way of the facts, at least for me personally. And does just kind of off topic, I know that CoreCivic just became a C-Corp. Does that really affect how it will stand with Vanguard, BlackRock, things of that nature? Well, I, I think that um, I don't know specifically in terms of the corporate structure and, and what they were kind of going for there, but I do think the extent to which um, it could be reflective, in my opinion, of broader financial challenges of that company, right, and not being able to pay dividends and, and not being able to kind of maintain um, the desired purpose of a REIT and therefore contributing, uh, converting itself to a C-Corp, you know, you'd have to ask them why they, why they chose to make that. But I think some analysts would interpret that to say, is this a sign of distress um, and that their lack of access to debt financing has become a real issue, you know, as in the past couple of years, uh, nine major banks, you know, representing a, a, the majority of their lines of credit and term loans have made public statements that they will no longer support the private uh, prison industry when their current loans run out, um, that, that that is having an impact. So, so I think even, you know, separate from the corporate change, there's just this question of, is this a viable industry? And I think that's where you start to see, you know, starting with um, Biden's executive order on day five, saying that he would ban the use of private prisons within the Department of Justice. Um, it was very funny to see that in one of the kind of earlier um, shareholder reports um, from one of the major private prison companies, they had said on record, oh, we're, we're not concerned, you know, they're not going to take any quick action on this. And then literally five days into his term, right? Um, so clearly this is something where the tide is changing on the industry and that um, they're morphing and they're trying to adapt. Um, but there may just be a moment in American society where we start to put a limit on what we're willing to make profit from. And I think that's that's the aha moment that I think a lot of people are happening. I think the role of private prisons and family separation in particular um, was just so horrendous that people couldn't ignore it. Um, and that essentially at a certain point, even if you are just a government contractor, quote unquote, just following orders, um, at a certain point, you have to have your own moral compass, you know, whether as individuals or as a company of, am I willing to put my kids to bed at night, knowing that there are children that have been separated from their families? Um, how, how am I supposed to live with that? And that that's how I'm making money. Right. And I think that's what led a lot of people to say, I don't want my, my bank to be making money from this. Absolutely. And to dovetail off that. So I know, you know, in the business world is kind of separate from the rest of the news cycle and these private prison securities, they only kind of crossed over into just like nationwide interest when Biden signed that order. But correct me if I'm wrong, I kind of saw that as the domino effect of activist efforts that kind of forced Chase and Wells Fargo's hands. Would you agree with that? 
I think that it is part of that kind of ongoing uh, trend in in two ways. One of people specifically addressing, is it appropriate to have um, such a high degree of of exploitation in the criminal justice and immigrant detention system? And whether that's uh, through private prisons or through e-carceration, right? They call the more electronic forms um, of of, uh, monitoring people like ankle monitors. Um, But then also this trend towards uh, people realizing that there are other ways to make money, right? So you'll see uh, reports, whether from uh, the Harvard Business Review or Deutsche Bank, like very traditional finance groups saying that you can absolutely make the same, if not more money, um, by following social and environmental principles, right? That one of the Harvard studies was that over a 30-year period, companies that had stronger social and environmental records had twice the market cap. I mean, that's that's remarkable, right? So I think there's also this question of you don't have to make that choice around, oh, am I going to be able to retire, right? Or do I have to invest in something like private prisons or fossil fuels or tobacco, right? Um, you now have so many options out there. Um, so I think that's where Yes, there is this rising tide against private prisons, but then also just in general off the idea of um, making money off of uh, industries that harm people. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of broader ideas about impact investing and, you know, just kind of in a nutshell of what we've discussed already that I think private prisons are kind of the perfect spokesperson for like, you know, they're they're kind of stemmed from a 1980s budgetary crisis. And they haven't even achieved their objective to save these states and, you know, government's money. So I don't know, like, it just seems rotten on every spec, every step of the journey. So anything that you would even find just kind of promotes more rotten material. I think that's where systems are so important, because I think you can know that something is bad, um, but then do you have the power to change it, right? So that's where, for instance, investors who might say, oh, I, I, I am not a, you know, a, a fan of private prisons, but, but blame the index, right? I, I want to be invested in index funds, and therefore I'm stuck, right? Um, as opposed to saying, well, how do those indexes get constructed? Could there actually be some value attachment to it? So for instance, in South Africa, I believe that in order to be listed on their stock exchange, you have to follow the GRI, the Global Reporting Initiative, um, uh, standards around social environmental reporting, right? That they basically put a line in the stand saying, these are so what they call material, you know, have, have such an economic impact on the bottom line of companies that you're not allowed to uh, to hide these and you have to prove that you're managing them, right? So they often say in business, what gets measured gets managed. Um, and the idea that social environmental risk is something that needs to be managed. Um, so I think it's interesting that as terrible as something can be, we have to actually shift the structures around it to stop funding it, right? Um, and I, I think what's really amazing to me, I bet if you ask 10 of your friends, uh, I mean, you might have a you know, particular group of friends, but how many of them uh, love private prisons? I'm guessing you're not going to get a lot of yeses. But if you ask them, how many of you know definitively that you don't have any money invested in private prisons? I'm guessing that most of them would say that they don't know. Yeah. Right? I, and that that is remarkable. Imagine if I asked you, like, do you know who you voted for in the 2020 election? Like, do you, do you recall? Right. And you'd be like, 
gosh, I, I'm not really sure. Like, I know I was there that day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like most of our votes, we know what we're voting for. And I think that's, yeah, that's where I think we really need to shift those systems so that people don't have to support things that they don't like. Yeah. And it's just like, you mentioned the SRA in South Africa, and I see these ideas introduced in my curriculum at like a pretty decent school. And it's the only part of the textbook that doesn't have like a real long paragraph supporting it. It's just kind of thrown to me from an educational perspective as like, oh yeah, here's some radical things that are being done across the globe. And really that's where the core of like most people I know who invest, that's what they actually care about. And it's the systems kind of designed to make us aloof to a lot of the bad things that come with it. One in three dollars under institutional management in the U.S. is actually under some type of social screen. So I think it is important to note that this really is pretty common practice. Um, some of those go more in depth than others, right? Like some folks will just screen out what they call the sin stocks, so tobacco, pornography. Um, and I, I think the question is, how does that become more broadly accepted and taught? And then the other piece that I would really note and that I talk a, a fair amount about uh, in my book, Real Impact, that so often, you know, and, and I think you're the perfect case, right, in, in terms of saying, although remind me if you're in business school um or a different type of program yeah i'm i'm i'm, I'm core i was a stand-up for 10 years and that no longer exists so i started getting an mba and a master's in finance as soon as i got locked down got it so you're sitting down now no more standing up um yeah you got to tolerate my dumb jokes. Anyway, um, so basically the idea that if you want to become a finance person, there's kind of a clear path, right? You go get that finance um, or MBA degree. Um, you go, you know, be an intern in investment bank for a couple of years and then poof, right? Like you will be viewed as qualified as an investor. Now, typically, if you then want to go on to do impact investing, it's just the, okay, go sign up for the impact investment department, right? Uh, but it's kind of viewed as a lateral move as opposed to what's the commission training that you need to have in social change uh, to be able to do that work effectively. And I think that's where the educational system hasn't really caught up to what the complexity um, of social changes, because when you get social change wrong, you can really harm people, right? And I think that's what we've seen in some examples like microfinance, right? When it's done really well, it's an amazing thing. When it's done poorly, it's led to suicides around the world, right? So um, I think that's where we need to be really thoughtful of like, yes, this is the thing that is happening, but it's not always done well. Um, and that that's where we need to really kind of dig in and strengthen that practice, whether educationally or otherwise. Yeah. And for my journey in particular, I know I'm a very progressive community oriented person with my competencies are in communication. I feel like the best way to be of service to the world I want to see is to get some kind of white collar skills that go with it. So even in my case, I'm taking that kind of like social consciousness, like and in, infusing it with the degree. And there's nothing orienting me along those ways in my education. Right. And I think that that's that's really a challenge. Um, but it does mean that, you know, I think people can educate themselves, whether it's your real world experience or um, kind of building their own curriculum, right? Um, but it's more that you just have to kind of have that dedication. Um, that if you're going to be an impact investor, you have to really take both sides of that equation equally seriously. Yeah. So for me, it's just like I have, if I'm going to apply for an internship, I have to look, I really have to look at the company, make sure there's nothing that I really disagree with and go from there. So it just adds another step to the process where 
there probably should be a track for people trying to enter these fields specifically rather than find their own way. But I think there's also a broader trend, you know, not just in investment, but consumer products or, you know, pretty much any industry where good old millennials, right? Part of, you know, people say, I mean, I'm, I'm a really like at the, I'm 38, I'm pushing the end of the millennial spectrum. So let's say the, the earlier millennials, um, that when they talk about how demanding and spoiled they are in the workplace, well, one of the areas where they're demanding is the idea that companies should have values. And I think that that is an awesome trend, right? That that is part of when people are deciding where they want to intern or work, um, of noting that they really want to be aligned with the values and, and they want to kind of feel that that sort of ownership. Um, so I think you're starting to see that, you know, whether it's uh, in the same way we all had to figure out, you know, when you go to the uh, the egg aisle of like, what's the organic versus the cage-free versus the I don't know what, um, but that we all became better conscious consumers, right? Um, and I think that you're seeing that of whether it's consumer purchases or where we get our jobs or our investments, that we have to learn how to be conscious consumers in all of those realms. Yeah. And it is kind of like, sorry, someone's ringing my doorbell right now. So I'm a little bit distracted. I'm not going to answer. It's fine. And thank you for not barking, by the way, Tillicum. What was my train of thought forgive me i hope you edit this thing i know like (laughs) people like me because i'm a buffoon and i believe what i believe in very firmly so a little rough around the edges or they'll be damned sure yeah they're fine with the 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 gluten gang a little rough around the edges i take a pee break most episodes so i haven't done that like today so that's good so I'll, i'll just switch gears here so you You've directed a lot of money to more just investing. And is there like kind of industries you look for? What do you look for as a good investment for that you can feel good about ethically? Yeah. So in general, my work is with uh, high net worth families and and foundations and influencers. um, And we tend to focus on what they call the private market. So direct investments into companies and funds, which can be either debt or equity. We've supported 90, over 90 investments um, over the last seven years, um, 125 million under management. So that's kind of the core of our work. Um, Over half um, of those investments have been into companies and funds that are led by women and people of color. Um, And just this past year, did over 20 million into Black and Native American communities. So that has been really an outcome of um, trying to make sure that we're investing as close to the ground as possible and knowing that communities often know what's best for them. So that's kind of from a principal perspective, something that we always look for of, is there leadership that is reflective of the communities that they're serving? Um, And what that has resulted in from an investment perspective is really wide ranged, um, that we tend to be looking for what we would call kind of structural solutions, right? So rather than making it just a little bit easier to be poor or uh, 30 years instead of 20, where we all die of climate change of what is like actually going to solve the problem. Um, And that has meant things like uh, supporting Navajo power, which is building utility scale solar for the Navajo nation and beyond um, and is a majority indigenous owned company. Um, Chai Fresh in Chicago, um, that is a co-op of uh, majority uh, formerly incarcerated 
incarcerated Black women who are providing healthier food options to uh, nonprofits and after school programs. Um, it can mean so many different things. <laughs> um, uh, the media company Macro, um, which just produced uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Um, and that's, that's one where I'm personally invested too. Um, so basically we are able to work across so many different, um, whether geographies or sectors. And I think that's part of really the fun of impact investing um, is just the incredible stories that it gives you. Um, but I think that's, you know, obviously private investments tend to be, um, you know, uh, most often executed by folks with significant resources. There are obviously times with crowdfunding or otherwise that people of all resource levels can, can kind of get in on the action. Um, in terms of um, folks who are just starting out, uh, typically looking at where you bank really is step number one. Um, and that there's such a vibrant network of what they call CDFIs, community development finance institutions that are really focusing on putting your money into good places. Um, so realmoneymoves.org is our affiliated nonprofit, uh, fiscally sponsored nonprofit entity. And that has um, lists of, of banks and other institutions across the country. Um, so I would, I would send people there um, if they're interested in looking at whether it's uh, banking or starting to look at stocks or what are some of the ways that you can incorporate uh, social investing into your portfolio. Yeah. And I think just going over Morgan's work and becoming a fan of it, it seems like it really makes an accessible argument for a lot of these things. And, you know, I, from my takeaway, if you're a listener to this podcast and you want to have like, do something that is probably a little bit more efficient, look at your bank, check them against the CDFI she mentioned and watch Judas and the Black Messiah. I don't know if you had any relationship with the writers, but I played a lot of basketball with the Lucas brothers back in the day, and you could really see that twin thing go crazy with them. Um, um, well, it is an amazing film. And I think that it is really important in terms of an example of, um, you know, coming out of such a really you know, t terrible history throughout media in terms of representations um, of people of color, and then also lack of the ability to you know, be able to make money in different parts of that industry. Judas and the Black Messiah, you know, being obviously a, a political film, the story of Fred Hampton, um, but then also, um, I think they are, you know, hoping um, if they wind up with the Best Picture nomination, that'll be the first time in history that you have um, a film with an all-Black production team. Um, the three executive producers, uh, Charles King, um, Brian Coopler, and then I'm forgetting the third. Um, but just to say, I think it's it's one where, yes, it's, you know, putting money to work um, and hopefully, you know, building a fantastic company. Um, but that the impact that they're having along the way is just truly, truly phenomenal in bringing these stories to light and, and telling very, very different stories about people of color than, than what we sometimes see. Yeah, and the compounding returns, the like broad change of perspective from making a story like that mainstream and trendy is absolutely huge. So shouts out to Macro, shouts out to everything you do. And thank you for helping with my homework assignment. Really, probably the best. What was your done. homework assignment? I had to do an ethical analysis of, you know, uh, a certain investing company. And I go to Michigan, a lot of my peers in my group, their English is their second language. So when I would talk about prisons, they wouldn't get it. I sent your articles over. It clicked immediately. We use you as a source. I went directly there. And you know what? Hopefully this will earn me some points with them because I've been kind of being lazy. 
Yeah. And I think regardless, I mean, I'm sure that, you know, hats off to anyone who is able to do um, a a university degree in a different country than your first language, you know, of of just how amazing that is. But I think honestly that um, the biggest issue I've found in speaking to people internationally is that uh, the idea that prisons in the U.S. make money is like, what? Wait, what? <laughs> like the UK um, has private prisons. Um, but otherwise, you know, we're the US in general is quite unique in that we lock up more people than any other country in the world. And we uniquely do it uh, with a for-profit emphasis. Um, and, and, you know, in the immigrant detention space, right, it's over 80% of immigrants who are held in the for-profit detention center. So I think that's the other, when you think about uh, the American dream, right? And even, you know, people who are able to come study or whatnot, the idea that, and I've, I speak to these people on a regular basis, you can cross the border. Um, so for instance, a Cuban man who went from Cuba to Panama and then crossed the border in Texas, um, was held there for 15 days and has now spent 21 months in a for-profit immigrant detention center, just waiting to be deported. No crime, right? Um, but the idea that you know we do that to immigrants, I think is just for people internationally, so unbelievable, <laughs> right? That it can be hard when you try to have that conversation uh, to, to even get people to, to recognize that it's a, a, an actual thing and that this land of opportunity would do to immigrants. Yeah, and I think from the broader perspective, being publicly traded inherently changes the way a company operates. And there's so many conflicts of interest within this exact industry. And the ramifications are all over our communities and neighborhoods, and it's pretty much unfettered. So something has to be done. That's why we are talking about on this podcast, so you knuckleheads can have your eyes open just a little bit. All right, so I did end up getting the delivery. Um, go check out her stuff. It's great. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Maddie, how you feeling with your uh, vaccine? I feel I'm starting to get a little sleepy in my arm, my left arm. I can't lift my left arm right now. It's a little sore, but I feel good. Uh, you know, we'll He's, see. He still probably thinks he can do like 25 pull-ups right now. You know this guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't do 25 right now. I just got the vaccine. That's my excuse for the rest of my life. I can't do it. I just got the vaccine. Yeah, so we are available. Patreon.com slash hold my bread if you want to level up help us out with our little journey as we grow and try and do some cool things here otherwise we'll be back with some fun ones next week maddie you got anything to shout uh i think stand up new york is going to start doing some shows outside so if you're in new york come see me at stand up new york shows uh i think they're going to open the club soon so um if that's something you feel comfortable doing if you maybe you've been vaccinated come to see a show other than that i don't really have much going on i'm still on twitch uh, every once in a while um follow me at matt Beckett sucks on instagram um that's about it though so i appreciate it i'm excited uh for the next couple episodes and uh i appreciate everybody we've been getting i mean we say this every week but i really appreciate every time i get a message from someone that listens so thank you for that yeah and even if you don't listen message matt he loves it that's true i do love it so 